This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Andrew Klemp, who is a consultant and honorary senior lecturer in medical oncology at the Christie NHS Foundation Trust and University of Manchester in the UK. Uh, the topic of this podcast is going to be our lead article, uh, Rucaparib Maintenance Treatment for Recurrent Ovarian Carcinoma, the Effects of Progression-Free Interval and Prior Therapies on Efficacy and Safety in the Randomized Phase Three Trial, the Aerial 3. So, Andrew, thank you so much once again, and uh, uh, congratulations on the publication of this and other articles related to uh, this important topic. Uh, thank you, Pedro, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to discuss uh, this study and, and some of the areas um, in uh, PARP inhibitor uh, treatments that are topical at the moment. Fantastic. So, Andrew, let's start by just talking about um, if you can provide our audience with uh, first the key highlights from the Aerial 3 trial and, and then sort of put this study in, in perspective and in context for, for our uh, listeners. Of course. So um, Aerial 3 was uh, the pivotal placebo-controlled phase 3 randomized control trial that's led to the approval of, of Recaprib as maintenance treatment for platinum-sensitive recurrent high-grade um, ovarian cancer. So it was a trial that randomized 564 women with high-grade serous or endometrioid um, ovarian primary peritoneal or fallopian tube uh, carcinoma who had platinum-sensitive uh, recurrent uh, disease and had not been exposed to a prior uh, PARP inhibitor. The patients had responded to their most recent platinum-based uh, chemotherapy um, and had a CA125 um, that had returned to within uh, the normal range. And then they were randomized in a, in a two-to-one uh, fashion to either receive uh, recaprib or matched uh, placebo. They could continue with uh, treatment until disease uh, progression, uh, provided they did not get uh, significant uh, treatment-related uh, toxicity. The primary endpoint of the trial was investigator-assessed uh, progression-free uh, uh, survival. And the statistical analysis was uh, designed in a hierarchical uh, fashion with three pre-specified uh, groups uh, that were predicted to get increasingly uh, potentially less uh, benefit from a maintenance PARP inhibitor. So the first group was uh, the uh, group that harbored a uh, pathological uh, BRCA uh, mutation, either germline or somatic, and that formed about 35% of, of the people who went into the, the trial. The second group was those that had homologous recombination uh, deficiency within their tumour. So they either had a BRCA mutation or an HRD uh, that was determined by a foundation medicine loss of um, heterozygosity um, assay. And that group formed about 65% of, of the entire population. And the final analysis was done in the whole intention uh, to treat uh, population. And what the study showed was that there was a significant clinically meaningful increase in progression-free survival in those patients that uh, took maintenance recaprib compared to those patients who received uh, placebo. So the magnitude of that benefit was greatest in the population that had a BRCA mutation. The hazard ratio was 0.23 uh, 
in that in that group and the median progression free survival in, improved by by almost a, a year from 5.4 months to 16.6 months in the second cohort so those that homologous recombination uh, deficiency the hazard ratio in favor of recapital was 0.32 and in the full intention to treat uh, population the hazard ratio was 0.36 uh, median progression-free survival improved from 5.4 uh, to 10.8 uh, months. What we know from subsequent exploratory uh, post-progression uh, endpoints, such as time to first subsequent treatment to progression-free survival too, is that that benefit from the maintenance uh, recaprid seems to extend beyond uh, the next uh, subsequent uh, treatment. So it delays the need for subsequent treatment and that persists uh, beyond that subsequent uh, chemotherapy uh, treatment. We don't yet have uh, final overall survival data from this uh, study. Uh, what we know... Yes, Sorry, go ahead. Pedro, you were going to... Yeah, no, no go ahead now. So, so what I was going to say is, is we know that uh, Recapra was, was generally well uh, tolerated. Um, there were some manageable uh, toxicities, uh, particularly nausea um, and uh, fatigue. And then there was um, hematological toxicities um, during uh, treatment, particularly um, anemia that could be managed by dose interruptions um, or, or uh, dose uh, reductions. So... Currently, Recapra, as I said, is licensed uh, now for the treatment of, of maintenance treatment of, of platinum-sensitive high-grade ovarian cancer, and that's one of three PARP inhibitors that are licensed in that in that space. So, Nirapirib um, and Alaparib are, are also um, licensed for that uh, treatment um, indication. And broadly speaking, what we know is that all three of those PARP inhibitors uh, probably have sort of equivalent um, efficacy. Um, in this treatment indication. Yeah, and actually that's a, that's a great segue to my next question because I wanted to just, before we go into the details of the study, um, if you could just kind of briefly outline uh, where do we stand with regards to um, our current standards of care in the United States and in the European Union uh, regarding the use of PARP inhibitors um, in the upfront setting. And, and I was wondering if you can go by sort of like the category. So first, BRCA mutants. Uh, second, homologous uh, recombination deficient. And then third, uh, use in those patients irrespective of BRCA of or, or HRD status. Yes, thank, thank you, Peter. So it's been, it's been a very exciting time over the last uh, 12 months with, as you say, PARP inhibitors uh, gaining approval um, in, in the first-line uh, maintenance uh, treatment uh, space. So all of these approvals have been for patients who've got FIGO stage 3 or 4, um, high-grade um, ovarian uh, carcinoma, who have responded after completion of their first-line platinum-based uh, chemotherapy or have no evidence of, of, of disease. So in terms of those three approvals, we've got a LAPRIB um, approved as single-agent maintenance treatment for up to two years uh, treatments for patients who have got um, high-grade uh, carcinoma that harbors a pathogenic germline or somatic BRCA1 or BRCA2 uh, 
uh, mutation. Um, Alaprib is also approved in combination with bevacizumab in the maintenance setting on uh, the basis of the Paola 1 uh, clinical trial. And that approval is for the combination of bevacizumab and Alaprib after completion of first line uh, platinum based uh, chemotherapy. And that's approved in uh, tumours that have got homologous recombination uh, deficiency positive status, either defined by the presence of a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, or by the presence of genomic instability that's been defined uh, using the companion uh, assay, which in this case is the Myriad uh, My Choice mm-hmm. um, assay. And then finally, the other approval is for nira- maintenance uh, Nirafrib, um, which has got a broader approval on the basis of the PRIMA uh, data. So for that, patients who, uh, with all um, high-grade um, ovarian uh, carcinomas following completion of first-line platinum-based uh, chemotherapy. And if you, as you said, that approval is irrespective of BRCA mutation or homologous recombination uh, deficiency status. Fantastic. Yes, and definitely uh, some uh, great strides we've made actually with those uh, studies and the impact on patient outcomes. So then now coming to uh, this study in particularly, um, wondering if you can speak about the eligibility uh, criteria and then uh, whether you can provide details on stratification based on uh, gene mutation. Of course. So um, the aim of, of, of the current um, analyses uh, were to evaluate the efficacy and safety of Recaparib in subgroups of patients within the Aerial 3 trial uh, based on progression-free survival or progression-free interval following their penultimate platinum-based chemotherapy, the number of prior chemotherapies and the prior use of, of bevacizumab. So the analyses were done in the whole Aerial 3 uh, data set, so all 564 patients who were randomized um, into the trial. And, and as we discussed, the main sort of eligibility uh, for that study was that the patient needs to have platinum-sensitive recurrent high-grade serous or endometrial ovarian uh, carcinoma with no prior PARP inhibitor exposure. The patient's disease had to respond to their most recent platinum-based chemotherapy, either with a resist uh, radiological response if they had measurable disease or a reduction of their CA125 within the normal uh, range for those who had um, evaluable disease. In terms of the stratification with this, the study, the randomization had three uh, stratification uh, factors. Uh, so the first of those was on the degree of response to the most recent platinum-based chemotherapy where the patient had a complete or partial radiological response. The second stratification factor was on the length of the progression-free interval after their penultimate platinum-based uh, chemotherapy, mm-hmm. i.e. was that 6 to 12 months or was it greater than 12 months? And then the third stratification was on the homologous recombination repair status by next-generation uh, sequencing mutation uh, analysis. And those three stratifications there were whether the, there was a patholog- pathogenic BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation or whether there was a mutation in one of 28 uh, non-BRCA homologous recombination repair uh, genes or whether no uh, mutation uh, was uh, present. The most common mutations that were seen with those 28 genes were, were found within RAD51C and, and RAD51D. Great. And um, 
And uh, I was wondering if you can also just uh, tell our audience uh, the dosing of the rocaparib uh, for those patients that were randomized to the rocaparib um, in this study. Yes. So, so those patients received rocaparib at a dose of 600 milligrams twice daily. And as I say, that could continue until disease uh, progression. Fantastic. So then what did you look at the primary objective of this study? So this, this study um, was set up with uh, the aim of evaluating the efficacy and safety of, of rocaparib in three uh, subgroups uh, of clinically or clinically relevant uh, subgroups. So firstly, uh, looking at uh, progression-free survival on the basis of the progression-free um, interval prior to receiving the last plasma-based chemotherapy. So was that um, between 6 and 12 months or was that greater uh, than 12 months, and that was a pre-specified subgroup analysis. And then there were two post hoc evaluatory um, exploratory subgroup analyses that were also performed, defined by the number of lines of prior uh, chemotherapy. So did the, had the patient received two or had they received three or more lines of treatment? And then thirdly, because of increasing use of, of, of maintenance bevacizumab, mm-hmm. um, determine whether that had a any impact on efficacy of, of recaparib, we looked at uh, patients who had received prior bevacizumab exposure compared to those who had no exposure to uh, bevacizumab. Fantastic. So then now, um, what did you find? What were the, the main results? What should be the take-home message from this uh, manuscript? Um, so uh, the take-home message is that the benefit uh, from uh, maintenance uh, recaparib was broadly similar across all of those uh, subgroups, irrespective of the duration of the uh, plasma-free um, interval, irrespective of the number of lines of chemotherapy, and irrespective of whether the patient had prior bevacizumab exposure or not. The magnitude of a benefit uh, from recaparib uh, was uh, similar. And that was the same across all of those three uh, pre-specified cohorts of, of patients. So those that had a, a pathogenic BRCA mutation, those that had homologous recombination deficient uh, tumor, and the entire intention uh, to treat uh, population. So that's great. It's actually showing a benefit throughout all the, all the groups. Um, so then, yeah, I mean, uh, now one, one of the things that I um, also was brought up in discussion with some of our um, journal fellows was as to the the impact of the original treatment and and uh, the next question comes with regards to um, when reintroducing a PARP inhibitor uh, in in terms of patients having had it in the upfront setting um, does doesn't matter uh, that they actually had a PARP in the upfront setting um, as it pertains to the reintroduction in the recurrent setting. So, and I think yeah, that's a, a really very topical um, issue uh, currently. I mean, clearly that the concept of PARP inhibitor treatment um, is a very attractive uh, concept, but currently we don't yet have any clinical trial data to support uh, that. Um, we don't know whether you know mechanisms of, of, of resistance to to PARP inhibitors that may have occurred um, during um, upfront therapy may still be clinically uh, relevant after subsequent 
uh, platinum-based uh, chemotherapy, and we don't know what the, the safety impacts to our patients are going to be from multiple lines of, 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 of PARP um, inhibition, particularly, I suppose, in, in terms of more uh, significant hematological uh, toxicity, um, and maybe the emergence of, of, a, of a higher incidence of, of myelodysplastic uh, syndrome or, or, or AML. Um, you know, so I think I, I would agree with the ASCO guidelines as, as, as uh, they currently stand that um, re-PARP inhibitor retreatment, you know, can't really be recommended as a, as, as a standard of care option yet. And I think what we really need to do is await data from from some of the the ongoing trials, particularly the the Oreo uh, trial, which is, has addressed this this question with. Uh, retreatment, uh, maintenance, um, elaborate in, in in a randomised uh, fashion, and, and you know we hope that the results of that trial are going to be available um, shortly. Yeah, and Andrew, one, one other question that uh, we had was: um, Do you consider that the introduction of of PARPs is best done earlier when the patients experience their earlier recurrences, or um, do patients benefit benefit from this? regardless of when the PARPs are introduced, particularly in those patients who have a recurrence and respond and then have another recurrence and then respond. Uh, what are your thoughts? So I think, you know, from our analysis of, of Aerial 3 and from the analysis of, of the trials that have been done with the other PARP inhibitors in the recurrent setting, although the magnitude of, of, of benefit, you know, as, as defined by that, the hazard uh, ratio seems similar in those that have only, that are in there, Sort of second remission as opposed to a third or, or, or greater remission. The difficulty is we know that to be eligible for a PARP inhibitor, you need to have responded to platinum. And the chances of responding to platinum reduce each time um, you know, the, the patient's tumour is exposed to that. So I think it's really clinically important for our patients that we introduce PARP inhibitors at the earliest response to platinum-based uh, chemotherapy uh, for recurrent high-grade um, ovarian cancer. I mean, interesting. One of one of these sort of exploratory subgroup analyses that we we present within the, the papers is, is looking at those patients with the most platinum-sensitive disease, so that those that had a a, a progression-free interval of more than two years uh, uh, before they started their, their their chemotherapy prior to, to going on to um, the aerial three trial. And in that group, there was still a very substantial benefit from the capital with a hazard ratio of 0.32. So I think that's really indicating that we shouldn't try and, and hold mm -hmm. uh, PARP inhibitors for later on in, in patients' uh, recurrent ovarian cancer. We should try and introduce them at the earliest possible opportunity. Great. Um, and now, obviously, patients often have the questions about side effects. So I um, was wondering if you can um, share with us what were the most notable uh, side effects in, in the study uh, from uh, Rucaparib. And um, the, 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 the follow-up question to that, were the rates of adverse events worse uh, for patients who had received a higher number of cycles of therapy? Okay, so I mean, they're, they're clearly very, very important uh, questions. So I think the thing to say is that most sort of treatment emergent adverse events um, on, on recaprib and indeed on, on other PARP inhibitors are, are manageable. Um, on the Aerial 3 trial, the most common events that we saw were fatigue and nausea. So all-grade nausea was reported in about three-quarters of patients 
who received recaprib compared to about 40% of patients who received uh, placebo. But the incidence of grade 3 uh, nausea was much lower. So that was 4% versus uh, 0.5%. That tends to be reported early, so it tends to emerge in the first um, few uh, weeks on, on treatment. But in many patients, it improves uh, spontaneously. And the levels of, of, of nausea on recovery compared to placebo tend to, to balance out after a patient's been on treatment for four, four or five months, indicating that, you know, this toxicity, you know, is uh, controllable and, and, and manageable. Mm-hmm. In terms of fatigue, again, about three quarters of patients who received recovery reported fatigue during uh, the treatment. But again, that was uh, generally uh, mild and with only with grade three in, in 8%. And that compares to um, patients on placebo, about 45% of those reported uh, fatigue. Mm-hmm. In terms of more significant uh, toxicities, obviously we need to be mindful of the hematological uh, toxicities on, on, on treatment, particularly anemia. So 22% of patients who received recaprib developed grade three anemia during uh, treatment compared to 0.5% of those are on uh, placebo. That tends on average to first be reported after three or four months on on treatment, um, but it can generally be managed with with, with treatment interruptions, uh, dose reductions and and transfusions um, Mm -hmm. if, if necessary. The other specific toxicity we see with recaprid is that you do see a reversible um, increase in uh, liver transaminase uh, levels early on in, in treatment, so in the first sort of, of, of cycle. Mm-hmm. But that, again, is transient and it tends to resolve uh, without intervention. Current guidance is that you can continue a recaprid with close uh, monitoring, even with, with grade three levels of ALT or AST um, increase with uh, closer monitoring, and that that should generally settle uh, within within two or three weeks. That's really great. Yeah, In to terms hear of that, mm-hmm. because uh, oftentimes uh, I know that patients will will drop the the treatment because of the increased in liver function tests. Yeah, and I think it's really important to re- reassure uh, patients that that doesn't uh, translate through to serious hepatic uh, uh, toxicity. It tends to be uh, very transient for the vast majority of, of, of patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, Andrew, so, the, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, you were going to add. Uh, I was going to say, sort of, just moving on to the sort of second part of your your question, mm-hmm. um, in terms of does does the toxicity get worse with increase in duration of, of treatment? We, we don't. We, that, that wasn't really noted within within, within Aerial 3 or, or indeed within um, any of the other sort of um, maintenance PARP inhibitor trials and that patients can often manage long-term uh, treatment without an increased um, incidence of toxicity, although we do need to be mindful in terms of continuing to monitor particularly for hematological toxicity because of the very small risk of potentially uh, developing myelodysplastic uh, syndrome um, on treatment. Yeah. Yes, and that, that was going to be my, my follow-up question as regards to whether we saw that in this study or the other uh, PARP inhibitor studies. Um, 
so yes, so so, so we did. So uh, within Aerial uh, Three, there were four cases of myelospastic syndrome and one case of AML in, in patients who received recaparib. So the overall incidence was one point four percent. No patients in placebo developed either of those uh, toxicities. Similar similar data has been reported for Olaparib and uh, Nurapirib. Yeah, so really small percentages. Yes. So then now uh, a series of uh, questions from our journal fellows. The first one, um, going back to your study, uh, did you see progression-free survival improvement in patients with HRD proficient status? So we did. So um, if you look back at the initial uh, paper of uh, Professor Coleman that was in the Lancet in, in 2017, they did that sort of post hoc exploratory analysis looking at the group of patients who were loss of heterogosity, lower HRD uh, proficient, and they did get a statistically significant uh, meaningful benefit from recaparib maintenance, although the magnitude of benefit was less. So the hazard ratio was 0.58. Um, in that group, median progression-free survival went from 5.4 to 6.7 months. Great. And then now on this study, uh, this, the additional question from them was uh, plans for the overall survival analysis. Yes, so that, that is definitely planned. The data isn't uh, yet uh, mature, but it will be uh, reported when about 70% of overall survival events has, have occurred in the trial population. And in um, a subsequent follow-up to that, uh, with regards to the outcomes uh, based on the use of uh, uh, maintenance, uh, bevacizumab, and I believe that uh, you had talked about uh, outcomes based on whether receiving or not receiving uh, bevacizumab, uh, what are your thoughts uh, in that patient population? Okay. So, so um, certainly in those that have received prior maintenance uh, bevacizumab, so not with the line of chemotherapy immediately before they entered the trial, um, those patients who received maintenance bevacizumab got a similar magnitude of benefit from uh, maintenance uh, recaparib uh, compared to those who, who hadn't received maintenance uh, Bevacizumab. Clearly, the, the question may be also pointing towards um, the, the attractive concept of, of using combination um, VEGF inhibition and, and PARP inhibition um, in, in the maintenance for, for recurrent disease, as you know, from the data that we've seen with Paola One in, in the first line uh, setting. So, we don't have any clinical trials that have explored that in, in recurrent. Uh, disease uh, yet. So ICON-9 is currently uh, recruiting um, internationally, um, which is in platinum sensitive recurrent disease, and those patients are randomized to receive alaparib or sojournib uh, plus um, alaparib. So that, I think, you know, will, I think, give us some robust phase three data to indicate whether combination uh, treatment as maintenance um, will be more beneficial than single agent maintenance uh, yeah. So then now this brings us to a question that we often ask the authors in, with regards to their own practice. Um, and uh, this question is, uh, what do you think in your patients is the best maintenance option today for patients with platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer recurrence 
who have already received first line maintenance part pay. Okay, so Pedro, I think so I think I think as we've mentioned previously, you know, we don't yet have any robust clinical trial uh, data to support uh, PARP inhibitor retreatment in those patients who've had a, a prior course of maintenance uh, PARP inhibitor. So I think in that group of patients, I would be keen to see whether there's a, a clinical trial that they could access looking at whether your PARP inhibitor retreatment or, or novel maintenance strategies. Um, in the standard of care arena, if bevacizumab were available uh, to me in the UK, unfortunately, it's, it, it's not in England uh, currently in the recurrent setting, but I, I think I would uh, recommend um, maintenance bevacizumab uh, for this uh, patient group. Great. Um, and and, and uh, just as a follow-up question to that, um, Andrew, for how long would you keep them on that maintenance bevacizumab? So, I mean... I think, you know, the clinical trial data suggests that um, in, in a recurrent disease setting, you should probably continue that in, until disease progression or until the patient develops uh, toxicity that would uh, make continuing with that treatment difficult. So I think that should probably be open-ended. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then now as a uh, last question, um, what do you think are the exciting trials that are ongoing that uh, we are anticipating on uh, the use of uh, PARP inhibitors in the recurrent ovarian cancer setting? Okay. So I think in, in terms of um, exciting areas at the moment, I think clearly one of the important areas is working out how we can combine some of these um, exciting targeted agents that we, we've got available. So we, we've touched on the use of, of combination antiangiogenic approaches with, with, with PARP attempters, um, particularly the ICON-9 mm-hmm. uh, study. Um, clearly, there is a rationale for combining a PARP inhibitor with a uh, checkpoint in, inhibitor, so, so immunotherapy. There are several trials that have uh, completed recruitment, particularly in the first line uh, space, looking at that question, and they're likely to be reading out in the next couple of years. So I think those results are really going to be very interesting. I think from a translational research point of view, we really need to get our get a, a real handle on what the mechanisms of, of resistance are mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to PARP inhibitors. You know, are we just looking at reversion mutations? Are there other um, more common clinically relevant uh, mechanisms? And how might that impact on, on PARP inhibitor uh, reuse? And I think another interesting area is, is looking at some of the new generation PARP inhibitors that are just starting to enter phase one uh, clinical trials. So drugs like the sort of PARP1 sort of selective inhibitors, which may have a greater sort of therapeutic uh, window to those drugs that we're using uh, currently. So that's great. That's uh, really exciting. A lot of uh, new things coming up in the horizon. Uh, and I, uh, I want to thank you uh, very, very much for your time I've enjoyed uh, listening to your discussion, and uh, thank you once again for submitting your article to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Thank you very much.